This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Amos. And as Amos speaks, I pray that we would hear. We are especially this morning looking at Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And we'll be studying through Amos chapter 2, verse 3. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the passage. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 764. 764 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of some of what we've considered uh, last week in the first few verses of Amos. Amos was a prophet of God. He was a man that God raised up to speak His words to His people. Previous to serving as a prophet, Amos was a shepherd and a farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah. The Lord called this shepherd from the south to deliver a message to the kingdom of Israel in the north. As we learned last week, at this point in biblical history, for more than 150 years, the people of God have been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, also known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. The unified kingdom became the divided kingdom after the reign of Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made some foolish decisions after his father, and this led um, ten tribes in the north to break away from his rule and anoint Jeroboam as king. Last week, I mistakenly referred to Jeroboam as Solomon's son, and I apologize for that. Uh, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and Jeroboam was Solomon's adversary, uh, whom the, the northern tribes anointed as their king in rejection of Rehoboam's rule as king. Jeroboam led the people of the northern kingdom into idolatry and sin. At this time in Amos' ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel is deeply entrenched in sinful patterns. It's Amos' responsibility to tell Israel that because of her sin, she will be carried off into exile. The Israelites will be thrust out of their land because of their sin, just like Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden because of their sin. The portion of Amos' prophecy that we're looking at together this morning is the Lord's judgment on on the nations surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, You can see a a map of those nations on the insert there in your bulletin. Uh, These are the nations that the Lord will be addressing. He's he's speaking to the nations that are surrounding Israel. Uh, Also, some of your Bibles might uh, have a, a heading for this section that says something like, Judgment on Israel's Neighbors. And that's a good, succinct summary of the verses that we'll be looking at together this morning. However, it it begs the question, why is Amos talking about God's judgment on these nations when he is supposed to be speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel? What do these sins, what are the sins of these nations and their punishment have to do with Israel's sin and her punishment? Well, I think that Amos is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, I think that we have these judgment oracles to show us that if God will hold the nations accountable for their sins, then He will certainly hold the people of Israel who have God's word and commands. God will hold Israel accountable for their sins. This week we're going to hold back on examining what God has to say to His people And focus our efforts on understanding what God says concerning the nations and their punishment. Uh, That way we're prepared to receive the full force of what God says to His people in a later study, should should the Lord tarry. I'd love to do it all at once to show you how it's kind of all working together. uh, But that would take longer than we've got time for this morning. And I'm sure some of you will thank me for this choice later. Um, let Let me just read the passage that we're looking at together this morning in its entirety. Uh, And as I read, try to make a a few mental notes 
of phrases and devices that you see repeated in the text. Because in our study this morning, we're going to be taking our cues from some of those uh, literary devices. So let me begin reading from Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four. I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. We're going to study this portion of Scripture under three headings. Divine declarations, terrible transgressions, and just judgments. Divine declarations, terrible transgressions, and just judgments. And if you're taking notes this morning, those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And let's begin with our first point, divine declarations. And as we do, read Amos chapter 1, just verse 3 this time. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, as I, as I read our passage a moment ago in its entirety, I hope and trust that you recognize several occurrences of what we see here at the beginning of verse 3, thus says the Lord. In fact, as I, I read, I hope you noticed more repetition than that. 
Amos is deploying a literary device in this section that we're studying. He's deploying several, actually. Uh, he presents what is known as a judgment oracle or formula. Uh, six times, Amos addresses nation, six nations in roughly the same way. What the Lord says to Syria in verses 3 to 5 is very similar. takes the same formula as what He says to the Philistines in verses 6 to 8, to Tyre in verses 9 to 10, to Edom in verses 11 to 12, to the Ammonites in verses 13 to 15, and to the Moabites in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, there are, there are slight variations along the way. But the style and substance and formula is largely the same. Amos begins with the Lord speaking and announcing the transgression of the nation. He then declares the nation will be judged, why they will be judged, and how they will be judged. Occasionally, Amos will insert a reminder that this is the Lord's declaration at the conclusion of the oracle. So you can see an example of this. You take a look there at verse 5, the end of verse 5. The people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. It's hard not to see that these are divine declarations. These are words from God. These are statements coming from the Lord who made the earth and the land and the sea. These are divine declarations from the God who made these nations. From the God who made you and who made me. They are made by the God who has infinite power in and of Himself. Who can do what He says and does what He says He will do. Now children, uh, when I was a child, back in the 1900s, uh, I, uh, I sometimes disobeyed my parents. They'd want to qualify that word sometimes and say often. Uh, but I sometimes disobeyed my parents when we were out in, in public. And when I did, when I did my, my father would let me know that he and I were going to have a conversation about my behavior when we got home. Now I normally straightened right up for my dad when he said that and I tried to be as good as possible hoping that he would forget that we were supposed to talk. Um, a few times he actually did forget. Um, but you know what? And, and, and when he did, I was, I was very relieved. As I'm sure if that's ever happened to you, uh, you've been relieved too. Um, so a few times he did forget. But, but you know what? God is not like that. He does not forget. He always remembers. He always does what he says he will do. And when we think about this truth, that God will do what He says He will do. We have two options before us. We can tremble before Him in fear, try and run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did, but He knew right where they were. Or, we can run to Him in faith, believing that He keeps His word. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, when He says that those who confess their sins to Him find mercy. Children, these divine declarations of judgment from God are invitations to come to Him in repentance and faith. The Lord has declared them in His Word not to drive us away but to draw us to Himself. And I want to encourage you to run to Him in faith. Children, talk to your parents this afternoon or this evening about the good news of Jesus Christ. Talk to them about how God has promised to punish sin and that He did so in His Son so that we might be able to confess our sin and find mercy in Jesus. That would be a good conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. In our passage, we should also observe another thing. We should observe how the Lord is saying what He is saying. How He is communicating, actually communicates in and of itself. 
even the form of our communication communicates something. Um, we've, we've already observed that there's kind of an overarching pattern to the Lord's speech here. Uh, these oracles follow roughly the same pattern. But there are also internal literary devices within these oracles. Um, you can see this in this statement. This, uh, there's a repeated statement for three transgressions and for four. You can see an example of it there in verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, Amos writes, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Now this, this phrase, for three transgressions and for four, is, is a, a literary device used in ancient Hebrew wisdom literature. And Amos uses it here to express a sense of kind of, of crossing the line. It's a brilliant choice for announcing a transgression uh, because what comes after three? Four. Four surpasses three. Four goes beyond. It transgresses the bounds of the previous marker. What is sin? Sin is transgressing. It's going beyond the bounds of God's law. The, the nations have outdone themselves, and not in a good way. Uh, the Lord doesn't name the three preceding sins. Instead, He simply names the fourth, as if to say, you have been sinful and wicked, but this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Here you've gone too far. And when we step back and consider this, we see that the Lord, even in the form of His communicating, is telling His readers that He's been patient long enough and that now He's going to judge. The Lord is patient. He is long-suffering and He is also just. One day He will rise up to judge. And this becomes evident in another pattern, internal pattern in these oracles. Uh, read Amos chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 again. Amos chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. You see here, there, there's a double statement concerning the punishment. The Lord first says something negative about the punishment, namely that He will not revoke the punishment. And then He turns around and says something positive about the punishment, namely that He will punish, He will send a fire, and that it will devour strongholds. Both ways of, of speaking about the Lord's punishment reveal that the punishment is certain. Negatively, it cannot be escaped. And positively, it will surely happen. Only the Lord could speak in such a way and it be unfailingly and terrifyingly true. The Lord is divinely declaring that He will decimate the disobedient nations surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel. But why? These divine declarations come in connection with the nation's terrible transgressions. And this is what we want to think about in our second section. So let's turn now and consider our second point, terrible transgressions. And as we do, read Amos chapter 1, verse 3 with me. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now here in verse 3, we meet the first of uh, six, the six transgressions of the nations. Damascus is mentioned in verse 3, but the oracle concludes by referencing Syria there in verse 5. Damascus is, is representative of Syria because it's its capital. Damascus uh, or the people of Syria have threshed Gilead 
with threshing sledges of iron. Uh, threshing was uh, the process of separating wheat from chaff, uh, and uh, a sledge with an iron head of teeth on it was often used in the process. It would, it would crush uh, the, the, uh, the, the grain. The, the image is, is to come to our mind is, is, is one here of the armies of Syria crushing the people of Gilead. Uh, in my mind, this, because this language is poetic, it's doubtful uh, that the armies of Syria literally used these instruments uh, on the people of Gilead. Uh, whether or not this literally happened is not beside the point, but it's also not the point. The point is that the army of Syria dealt ruthlessly with the people of Gilead. They defeated them, conquered them, and they went on to use excessive force against them in the process of their conquest. Syria treated Gilead inhumanely, just as a farmer would treat his grain. Now, it's not wrong for a farmer to treat his grain in, in an inhumane manner. Grain is not human, after all. But when it comes to dealing with people made in the image of God, we enter into another category altogether. Syria went beyond what was necessary for conquering their foe. They were not simply victors, they were barbarians. They clearly treated the people of Gilead inhumanely. And the terrible transgression that they were guilty of was failing to treat even their enemies as people made in the image of God. God does not condemn war. In the Old Testament, God actually commands His people to go to war on several occasions. God authorizes war and even declares what is just in war. And here the Lord is clearly revealing that the barbarity and the brutality with which the Syrians uh, treated Gilead, Gilead was outside the bounds of prosecuting a just war. Biblically speaking, when war must be pursued, it must be pursued with restraint. It must actually have a goal. It is to be pursued either to defend against enemies and decisively push them back or to deliver a people from injustice. The aim of war should not be for the purpose of exploitation or exploration. And, and if you want to think more about the subject of just war, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of Don Carson's book, uh, Love in Hard Places. His reflections on scripture in that book have shaped much of my thinking on the subject and have been helpful in the past few days uh, in thinking about a number of matters occurring in our world today. The problem with what Syria has done to Gilead is that they have set themselves up as God. Syria is not God. Syria does not have the right to take God's throne and endeavor to determine what is permissible or impermissible treatment of God's creatures. No one has that privilege but God. God alone declares what is permissible because He alone is God. Syria was not the only nation who was guilty of terrible transgressions. The Philistines were guilty too. Uh, read Amos chapter 1 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Now in verses 6 to 9, Philistine cities are mentioned and they are again representative of the Philistine people as a whole. What terrible thing have the Philistines done? They carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And what the Lord is most likely referring to here is when the Philistines would raid uh, towns in Israel, steal men, and sell them to Edom. This terrible transgression the Philistines were guilty of here is what Christians have historically called man-stealing. 
in contemporary terms, we speak of it as participating in slavery or in the commercial slave trade. Another nation is guilty of this sin too. In verse 9, the Lord sets his sight on the transgressions of Tyre. Read verse 9. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole nation, a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. It's clear here that Tyre was also involved in the slave trade, but its practice was even worse than that of the Philistines, if that's possible. They appear to have covenanted with another nation to be allies. But here they're described as betraying their covenantal commitment for money, for profit, for gain. They did not keep their covenant. They were covenant-breaking, man-stealing slave traders. And here, the Lord makes His displeasure towards slavery known. The Scriptures everywhere undermine the kind of chattel slavery that occurred in the 18th and 19th century in America and Europe. The Lord freed the people of Israel from that kind of slavery in Egypt. Now, I'm I'm sure you've heard somebody say uh, from time to time, yes, that's true, but elsewhere the Bible speaks about slavery. It's true that the Bible does speak about slavery. It speaks about slavery in a place like Exodus 21. But even there you should notice that it's a different form of slavery than that that the people of Israel experienced in Egypt. It's a different uh, form of slavery than that of chattel slavery that we saw here in the 18th and 19th century in America and Europe. Uh, But even more than that, you should notice that those laws that are given are given for the protection of slaves. When slavery is talked about in the Scripture, it's clear that the Lord isn't condoning the practice at all. He's issuing laws that prohibit abuse. Laws which will actually undermine the whole structure of the system. So when we turn to the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul appealing to a master to free his employee on the basis of love, his bond servant and slave. In Philemon, uh, verse 16, Paul tells Philemon to view Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Paul calls Philemon to forgive any debts that his servant might have by charging them to his account. Paul, in his plea, is attacking the very foundation that upholds the structure of slavery. He's calling his readers to love the life of his brother more than himself. Love is the proverbial dynamite that's being laid against the foundation of slavery, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, slavery still exists today, often in the form of human trafficking. And we need to be aware of it. Sadly, human trafficking is a booming business in the United States of America today. Human trafficking is a $9.8 billion a year industry. And there are more than 100,000 victims each year. Uh, Shared Hope International, it's a Christian organization, organization seeking to combat human trafficking. It issues a report card each year on each state, issuing a, a letter grade in how the state is doing in fighting human trafficking. For 2013, the state of Virginia received a D. That's one letter grade better than it had the previous year. We should be shocked and horrified at what is taking place in America and in our state. We should pray for our Lord to break the back of that horrific industry. And we should be involved where we can. Some in our congregation have bravely helped others escape from the clutches of those who carry on the sins of the Philistines and Tyre. I praise God for that. What is at the heart of the Philistines and Tyre's actions? What, what's motivating? What's driving? How is this possible? It's the desire to rule and be God. 
How else can we describe the actions of someone that displays an attitude of, I can move that creature from here to there. I can use them how I please. We are not the creator. We are the created. We are creatures. Creatures. And, and even where the Lord grants us authority over the lives of others, it's always limited. And whether through birth, or marriage, or through employment, our authority is limited and God calls us to exercise it for the good of those under our authority and not for our personal gain. In verse 11, the Lord then turns to address Edom, the recipients of all the slaves from the Philistines and from Tyre. Read verse 11. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. The, the brother here that Amos is referring to is, uh, is almost certainly referring to Israel. The, the people of Edom descended from Esau. As we know from the book of Genesis, there was hostility between the two brothers, between Jacob and Esau. And that hostility carried down through the years. Not only did Edom receive the Israelites as slaves, but the people of Edom also let the people of Israel know their unrestrained anger, rage, and fury. It's a terrible image to think about a man pursuing another man with a sword. But that's what Edom did. They unlawfully killed those whom they were holding as slaves. And the terrible transgressions seem to escalate further in the next two oracles. Let's actually look at, at Amos's last oracle first. Let's look at Amos's oracle to the Moabites. Uh, the Moabites revealed their hatred of human life after a king had died. Read chapter 2, verse 1 there. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now the actions of the Ammonites might be better translated here, burned to ashes, instead of lime, burned to ashes, the bones of the king. Uh, the, the point's largely the same, though. Uh, the Ammonites were incredibly disrespectful toward a dead body. And while we know that while, uh, when believers die, their, their souls are made perfect in holiness, and they do immediately pass into the presence of the living God, at the same time, their bodies do rest in their graves until the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. When we look at a body at a funeral, we're not looking at someone who's there. Uh, we're never told anywhere in the Scripture that they can hear us. Nevertheless, the, the body of a believer and all human bodies belong to the Lord. They will return to dust, so there's no need to treat them in a mystical manner. And yet, they should certainly not be desecrated. Uh, they will return to dust, but they're still the Lord's dust. At the day of judgment, the resurrection, the Lord is going to do something with those bodies, with that dust. He's going to raise them from their graves, glorify them, and believers and unbelievers will live uh, in them, whether in heaven or hell, for all eternity. Now, if, if reading this passage uh, causes you concern over the practice of cremation or organ donation, I would encourage you not to be concerned. What Amos is describing, Amos chapter 2 verse 1 is describing, is men who reveal the hatred of life. That's their sin. Uh, supplying an organ to another person reveals that you actually love life. You want to try and help sustain it insofar as you can. And you don't need to worry about whether or not you'll have that organ in heaven. The Lord is going to give you the body that you need to enjoy eternity with Him. And He'll even give you a better body than you have now and have ever dreamed you will have. He's going to give you the body you need to worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him. 
Well, finally, let's consider the terrible transgression of the Ammonites. Read Amos chapter 1, verse 13 with me. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. Now we know from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19, that the Lord had graciously given the Ammonites their land as a gift. And this is how they repaid the Lord and His people. They didn't have enough land, or so they thought. They wanted more. And they wanted it so badly that in the midst of battle, they would even kill the most defenseless by running their swords through expectant mothers and their unborn children. I'm not sure there's a clear place in the Bible where the Lord reveals His displeasure with the death of a mother and the death of her unborn child. Of the six judgments toward these six nations, the Ammonites receives the lengthiest address uh, in concerning their judgment. And what takes place here is certainly akin to abortion. Abortion is wrong. And abortion occurs today for the same reason that the Ammonites ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. The Ammonites wanted gain, personal gain. They wanted to expand their borders. They killed these women and children for personal gain. And it's the same reason that many sadly pursue abortion these days. Excuses of inconvenience or unpreparedness are negative ways of stating personal ambition and gain. And when you reject God as king of all life, you can become the king who decides who does not who does not have the right to life. If you have taken the life of your unborn child, then you need to know that God does forgive. God forgives all of the sins of all of those who confess their sin and seek Him for mercy. You may have taken a life in haste and personal gain, but God long plans to give life through His Son, Jesus Christ. If this is something you're wrestling with or burdened by, I want you to know that the elders of this church uh, would love to care for you and pray for you. Please do come and speak to us. We want you to know about God's grace and compassion in the midst of pain. And in fact, if there's any sin that you're struggling with and wrestling with in your life, you feel like you need to talk with a pastor about it, please do come and speak with us. We want to encourage you to think on the Lord's mercy and grace and walk with you in love and care. Especially hold on to these words from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What a wonderful promise from our God. When we step back and consider all of these terrible transgressions, we see a single theme running through them. In one way or another, these terrible transgressions are acts of inhumanity. They are devaluations, desecrations, or decimations of human life. Shouldn't the nations have known that what they were doing was wrong? Well, let's think about that question now. Let's turn now and consider our third point, just judgments. And as we do, read Amos chapter 1, verse 3 again. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The judgments that are enumerated concerning these nations are not arbitrary. The Lord provides a reason each time He makes a judicial pronouncement. You see it in the single word, because, 
there. Not only do we see the Lord's reason, but we also see the nation's guilt proclaimed. The word because is followed by they have. The Lord is not judging and punishing innocent nations. The Lord is just. The Lord is judging these nations because they have done something. They've done something sinful and wrong. The Lord's judgments are just. And still the question remains, does the punishment fit the crime? Each of the punishments that the Lord threatens are structured in a similar way with only a slight variation here and there. Uh, You may have noticed that with each punishment the Lord promises to send a fire upon the nation and that it shall devour the nation's stronghold. So for example, consider the Lord's judgment upon Tyre there in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Fire is obviously a way of, of describing the just wrath of God against the nations and the punishment most certainly fits the crime all of the nations were using excessive force dealing inhumanely with their enemies as they expressed their dominance and the Lord intends on so weakening the defenses of these nations that they will in turn be defeated their dominance will be reversed and as a consequence they will be on the receiving end of some of the same crimes that they committed exile brutal warfare and even death. Even though human agents surrounding nations and enemies will be instruments through which God chooses to carry out His punishment, we need to recognize that this is not an impersonal judgment. This is not an impersonal judgment from God, but a personal judgment. The Lord says, so I will send a fire. In verse 8, the Lord says, I will turn my hand against Ekron. In Amos chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord says, I will cut off the ruler from its midst. The Lord, through ordinary means, and in some cases extraordinary means, will personally punish the nations for their perverse deeds. In the words of Alec Mateer, actions directed towards men provoke reactions from God. Let me ask you, do you think that what the nations did was wrong? Do you think that the nations, what they did was wrong? Do you think that their pursuit of murder, murder, uh, barbarity in war, slave trading and killing most defenseless in society was wrong? I'm guessing that your answer in your head is, is yes. Why? Why were the things these nations did wrong? They didn't have God's law in their hand like Israel did. Isn't ignorance of the law a reasonable excuse? How could they have known? They knew that it was wrong. In the same way that you and I know that it's wrong. We have been created in God's image. And He has given us consciences. Our consciences aren't infallible, but they aren't totally unreliable guides either. When I ask the question, do you think that what the nations did was wrong? And in your mind you said, yes. That was your conscience speaking. That was your conscience speaking. And the Lord gave you that. That should reveal to you that God made you. And that He gave you an indication of His moral law on your very heart. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 that every human being knows what God requires. And that we even prove our knowledge from time to time by doing what God requires. Friend, God has revealed His character and His will in the very fabric of the created order. 
He has done that even inside of you. And if you reflect upon your own heart, you know that you have not always done even what your conscience commands. Sometimes you have loved your life so much that you have murdered another person in your heart. Now you may have not physically murdered someone like the people of Edom did, but Jesus tells us that when anger in our hearts rises toward another, that we think of them as fools and inconsequential, then we've actually murdered them in our hearts. We're not so very different from the nations mentioned here in Amos chapter 1 and 2. They set themselves up as God when they decided to use God's creation as they pleased instead of how God commands. And their consciences even told them that it was wrong. And now God is telling them it is wrong. When we decide to live our own way rather than God's way, we are setting ourselves up as the king of our lives. When God is the king of all life, the Bible identifies this as sin. Sin is transgressing God's law. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we all stand in danger of facing God's just and eternal wrath against our sins forever in hell. The punishment that God promised upon these nations was but a temporal judgment. But God's eternal punishment of sin is eternal. This picture here of God's judgment of the nations is but a small reflection of what His eternal wrath will be like. But the Bible also proclaims good news to sinners. God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save His people. And not just the Israelites, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation. People from these nations. That's how the book of Amos ends. It ends with God promising that He would send His Messiah to rescue people like these nations, like you and me. He did that through His Son, Jesus Christ. He was God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He lived the life that none of us lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Where we have been sinful, Jesus was sinless. No sin in His life. He was perfectly sinless. And yet, He went to the cross and took upon Himself the judgment, the sins and the punishment due to the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus Christ died under the judgment of God so that sinners like you and me might be forgiven of our terrible transgressions. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him, proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners satisfied God's divine justice. Jesus now invites us to know the mercy and favor of God. He calls us to escape His judgment and believe that Jesus was judged for us. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to come to Him in faith today. You need Him because you need mercy from God. You need to escape God's just judgment. Just judgment. So turn from your sins and come to Jesus Christ in faith today. And if you want to know more about what that means, what it means to follow Jesus and to find mercy and grace and favor in God's sight, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with someone downstairs in the time of fellowship about what you're thinking about. There's nothing more important you can think about today than this good news of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, I want us to think about how Israel would have been hearing and receiving this message and how we should be receiving this message. We must keep in mind that the nations, that the nations that are addressed here, weren't actually the ones to first hear this message. This message was first heard by the northern kingdom of Israel. And you've got to know that when Amos first came 
to the people of the northern kingdom that the people of the northern kingdom looked upon him with skepticism and suspicion. They must have been thinking to themselves, what is this guy, this low-life shepherd from the south, coming up here, talking to us here in the northern kingdom with his annoying southern accent? What, what does he have to say? Uh, and then Amos started talking. And he went on talking about how these surrounding, the nations surrounding the people of Israel are facing judgment. And you know, Israel must have thought to themselves, the Lord's going to take Israel, uh, Syria down a peg. Awesome. Yeah, the, okay, now we're talking about the judgment of the Philistines. That's music to my ears. They've long been our enemies. This is good. So maybe I'm going to listen to this guy just a little bit more. Maybe I'll listen to this guy from Judah. Israel would have received this news from Amos with joy. Israel would have also received this message with ignorance and with blindness to their own iniquities. Because Amos is shadowing some of their sins right there. When we hear the sins of others proclaimed, we should be quick to think of ourselves. We should be humbled by the judgment that our own sins deserve. And still joyful that one day, we will worship around the throne of the Lamb with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Because that's who Jesus came for. He came for people deserving of judgment. He came for the nations. He came for you and me. Praise God that He came. Let's pray together.